0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 8th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View
1: coming up today. The numbers are there and the statistics show that this is now a proper recession as economists would define it.
0: With uncertainty in Europe and a trade war between the world's great superpowers, could Germany be facing a recession? My guests Stephanie Bolson and Quentin Peel will discuss that and the day's other news, including should we plug the leaks? What role does illicitly sourced information play in politics? And are robot microhouses the heralds of a brave new world or horsemen of the techpocalypse? Plus, it's a sign of shifting powers in Europe. But the reality is also that Macron has taken up the bad cop mantle on Brexit. Merkel passes the baton to Macron in the inflexible assertion of the EU's founding principles stakes. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Stephanie Bolson, UK and Ireland correspondent for Develt, and Quentin Peel, associate fellow of the Europe Program at Chatham House. We will start in Germany, whose widely understood role in Europe has, for many years, been that of the one who is keeping their head when all around them are losing theirs. The country on whose industry and prosperity the rest of us can rely—well, perhaps not for much longer. Anxiety about an actual recession in Germany is accelerating, following a mild slump in industrial orders, although actual industrial output rose marginally in the same month. So Germany might yet get away with it. Um, Stephanie, we are right now a fair distance from panic stations, aren't we?
1: Completely. I mean, um, I I don't want to be sound at all complacent and the numbers are there and the statistics show that this is now a a proper recession as economists would define it. But I can't, I've been looking through the German media this morning, I can't find any coverage of that. So I think while of course the export uh, business is hit and obviously is very worried overall the economic situation in germany is good so unemployment is very low Uh, there's a massive need of skilled workers Um, the um, domestic demand is very high simply because uh, the the interests are so low that germans cannot save they don't like not being able to save but therefore they are spending money they are putting a lot of money into real estate. Germans are buying houses like never before. Um, So overall, again, it might be complacent, but for now there is no panic to be seen.
0: Uh, Quentin does the rest of Europe and indeed possibly the world have a tendency to get more nervous about economic data like this because it's Germany and that's the role Germany plays they're the they're the banker nation if you will well it's been a very
2: long standing sort of european concern particularly from france but also in fact from britain and southern europe we wish Germany would spend more. We want domestic spending in Germany to grow because then Germany would import a bit more from us and we wouldn't have such a huge deficit in our trade with Germany. So they've been banging on for a long time and certainly all through the Eurozone crisis to try and get Germany to uh, spend more, spend more from the public purse. And now you've got a situation where the German economy is Growing very slowly, or even slipping into recession. Uh, And the public purse is entirely in balance, but the German uh ideology, the theology really, is that there must be a balanced budget, so we're not going to spend. And yet the German government could borrow at minus something percent, so it would actually be paid to borrow. It's an extraordinary situation.
0: <laughs> uh, Stephanie, if there is a slowdown of sorts, um, if, as you said, we are far from panic stations, is there any certainty about what might be driving it or what might be causing it?
1: Well, uh, um, there, if there is uh, an economic and there is an economic uh, downturn, it's mainly driven by um, exterior factors. So, the trade wars with trade wars with uh, the U.S., uh, China, uh, China's consumer appetite lower. I mean, there are crises all over. Brexit certainly will also hit Germany. It is already hitting Germany. So, yesterday there were new figures about uh, Britain having gone down from, I think, the export nation for Germany on. Number five or seven is now down to 13. So exports to the UK are also uh, on a a downturn. Um, But it's, I mean, as Quentin just said, what is probably that's what makes Germany not panic is that they have not only a balanced budget, they have a surplus budget. And the government has always said, If there is again a downturn, we will start spending again. And this is probably what the government was going to do.
0: Uh, Quentin, Stephanie has there invoked the B word. um, And it it has been a a shibboleth of Brexiters for years and years and years that the reason that would all be all right in the end was that the the German automobile industry, for some reason or other, would ride to the rescue. Um, As of this morning, that is appearing less and less likely. There has been a conversation between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and German Chancellor Angela Merkel An account of that conversation has been leaked from number 10. um, So it's not certain how much credulity we can place in it. But they quote Merkel as saying that a deal is now overwhelmingly unlikely.
2: I think that is very much the attitude uh, right the way across Europe, because having waited and waited and waited to see what Boris Johnson would put on the table as his deal, they've taken a hard look at it now and they think well this is actually going nowhere it's not actually moving towards a compromise, if anything it's going away from a compromise by saying Northern Ireland will now have two borders, not no border so they're really finding it very difficult to live with Um, uh, and uh, the trouble is that the Brexiters have been living with so many fantasies, fantasies in this whole game one of them being that Germany will eventually pull the uh, pull the chestnuts out of the fire, so to speak, um, because Germany won't be hit anything like as badly by a no deal. Uh, Brexit as Britain will be um, because a much smaller proportion of German exports go to Britain than British exports Mm. go to Germany so you know it's been a fantasy in any way most of the cars, German cars that are actually sold into Britain are not made in Germany, they're made in places like Slovakia so it wouldn't hit Germany directly so it's been one of the uh, literally dreams of the Brexiters that somehow everybody else needs us more than we need them
0: Uh, Final quick thought on this one, Stephanie. Does this account of the conversation ring true to you? Because it, it does rely on the rest of us imagining that Angela Merkel, who usually speaks extremely carefully and cautiously, has used some fairly undiplomatic language.
1: We don't know yet. So I've, I'm just was just about to try to find out uh, to get the version from Berlin. What is quite striking about this whole anecdote is that usually what you get is a is a readout of a call between two prime ministers. That I, I haven't received one yet, but lots of leaks, and this is um, this is part of the whole. Um, tactics seen now by Downing Street. There's lots of leaks, and these leaks feed into the narrative of Boris Johnson, which is, we wanted a deal, but the Europeans were intransigent, and therefore, if there is no deal, it's not our fault. It's the European Union's uh, fault. And I don't know if you've seen the tweet by uh, Donald Tusk, the EU council president, which is absolutely fuming and saying... He he seems
0: unimpressed.
1: He's very unimpressed, and I think... um, I mean, you can't be really surprised. This is where it was always going. There was going to be a very ugly blame game and I think it just started this morning.
0: Stephanie Bolson and Quentin Peel, we will be back with both of you in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Ben Ryland has some of the other stories we're looking at today. Thanks, Andrew. Ecuador's president,
3: Lenin Moreno, has temporarily moved government operations from the country's capital, Quito. It follows widespread protests against a controversial fuel price hike. Moreno has so far refused to back down and has accused his opponents of attempting a coup. Hong Kong's embattled leader Carrie Lam says she won't use colonial-era emergency powers to introduce new laws. Lam signaled that she was ushering in the new measures to quell political protests in the city, but the move prompted a violent backlash from demonstrators. And the leaders of Canada's main parties have taken part in a heated debate ahead of this month's federal election. The country's main opposition leader, Andrew Scheer, called incumbent Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a phony and a fraud who was not deserving of re-election by the Canadian public. That's what's making news today.
0: Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Quentin Peel and Stephanie Bolzen. Well, let's take a look now at an aspect of current politics in both the US and the UK so listeners of a nervous disposition may wish to absent themselves for the next few minutes. US and UK politics are both arenas about which it may be argued that nobody knows anything at least of all the people theoretically in charge. Some of what we do know however is coming to us via leaks. Here in the UK, The Spectator has published what is now certainly a By Prime Ministerial adviser Dominic Cummings outlining Downing Street's strategy vis-à-vis Brexit. In the U.S., meanwhile, leakages continue about current and possible future blowings of the whistle at the diplomatic outreaches of President Donald Trump. Um, Quentin, first of all, to this thing the Spectator has published, there's no way it isn't by Dominic Cummings, is there?
2: I mean, the style, the, <laughs> the, the the length, the ranting quality is very Dominic Cummings. And all over Twitter, everybody's assuming it's Dominic Cummings. I mean, it's it's quite interesting in a way because, of course, leaks are normally done so that they're deniable, so that there's no name on it. and they can, They're not bothering to deny this one. They're not saying it was Dominic Cummings. They're just not denying the content of the leak. So uh, it's a curious... I think it's something journalists have got to be very, very very careful about we are used sometimes quite often by leaks they're not leaks they're plants but because they're given to a journalist perhaps exclusively that journalist thinks oh well then i've been treated really well i better give this a big show i better believe it and so on and i only find out about three weeks later that the whole thing was complete rubbish
0: (laughs) Uh, stephanie is there a a difference in in leak culture if you will from country to country i mean for as as Quentin was just explaining, it's 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 a, a long established practice here in the UK. Is it as common in Germany? No. Is it done the same way for the same reasons?
1: No, it's not. I mean, of course, there there are leaks from time to time, but what we are seeing now in the UK is that actually leaks are. Uh, a substitute for proper politics. So, and and this is because we ha- I mean, the the British government finds itself in a situation where there is no way out. So they are stuck in a in a cul-de-sac, and therefore the only thing they can now do, and which works, by the way, is build up their own narrative why the situation is so difficult as it is, because what they're actually looking is is an, an election very soon, and they need to make sure that they get the the votes of the of the Brexit party, and then maybe Boris Johnson will win an absolute majority. That's what all these leaks are about. It's about nothing but the narrative. The Germans are now to blame. The EU is to blame. We tried our best. I mean, in, in Germany, the, the political culture is, you know, is, is very different. There um, is not this kind of lobby journalism in in in, uh, in Berlin as there is in London. I always find it fascinating to be here and looking at how the prime minister's spokesman uh, are briefing the lobbies so or the the. London correspondents or the London reporters of the big uh, papers and how brutal it is. It is really brutal. I I think in Germany is... On the other hand, I think in Germany often we are not fierce enough. We don't Hmm. ask... um, (laughs) aggressively enough sometimes we too much play the game of the government and in brussels as well many journalists play too much the game of the commission because you want to get papers and you want to have the scoops but then again um, as quentin said here the press very much is becomes instrumentalized to actually drive a wedge into society by, by running these headlines (laughs)
2: <laughs> this, I mean, the lobby system in Britain is is a very iniquitous system, really, and quite a few newspapers have tried over the years to withdraw from it and not get these exclusive briefings. Um, and it, it's never really worked very well. It was one of the great driving forces when they launched the Independent. I would disagree, though, uh, cautiously, but on one tiny thing with Stephanie. There, there is a system in Germany that it's not like the lobby system quite, but you you can get talked to unter Eins or 2 and dry. under one, two or three. Under one is on the record. Under two means you can quote a senior government official, and under three means you're not supposed to use it at all. I've never quite understood why on earth you're being told <laughs> it. Well,
1: this is, for, this is um, because then they hope in your next uh, leading article you will write what they're thinking is.
2: Yeah, and you do get a strange system where you're, you know, you're told you have to check quotes uh, with the person you've got an interview from, and so in the end you have to say the thinking in the Chancellor's office is without any direct quotes and just hope people will believe you.
0: But Stephanie, do, do German politicians, German ministries, institutions just not leak at all? No,
1: of course they do. Of course they do. <laughs> of course. I mean, there is lots lots of leaks. I just think it's not, it's not the day-to-day as much as it is here simply because... Um, Luckily, Germany, for the time being, is not in the same existential crisis like the British government.
0: What's your experience as being, Quentin, of being leaked at? Have you ever been leaked something properly good and or one of those other stories that you mentioned where it turns out a few weeks later you'd been sent on something of a wild goose chase? Uh, both, actually. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, I was certainly... During the Eurozone crisis, I was getting quite good leaks um, from what was going to happen in trying to solve the crisis. Um, Of extreme sensitivity and market-moving sensitivity, and therefore we had to be very careful how we double-check these things. I mean, that's another of the problem of the leaking system, that you really must have ways of trying to check things. The the one where I was set up was actually in Germany, where I had an off-the-record briefing from one ministry, the foreign ministry, saying if david cameron insists on vetoing what's coming up in brussels angela merkel is going to try and get the summit called off and i and i wrote it without being able to get it really substantiated downing street went berserk and rang the Chancellor's office and they formally denied it. But in fact, it was a very clever use of me because the story was out there that Angela Merkel would do it and then they were able to deny it. I did feel rather used, but immediately afterwards I was told, oh, by the way, you've got that interview with Chancellor Merkel that you wanted.
0: <laughs> uh, well, Finally on our news panel, uh, to San Francisco and a glimpse into the dystopic Pantechnicon, which doubtless awaits us all. By way of response to riotous accommodation costs in the city, a robotics startup called Bumblebee Spaces has refurbished an elegant Nob Hill townhouse into a hive of tiny apartments in which almost all storage space and indeed much of the furniture is secreted in the ceiling and made to rise and descend when required. It is not the only such experiment underway in San Francisco. Podshare, for example, will rent you a bunk bed in a communal room for $1,200 a month um, Stephanie is there any part of this that sounds enticing to you?
1: I, I find this uh, fascinating and actually living in London and in very limited space I quite like the idea, the problem is the ceilings in my house are not high enough to, uh, <laughs> to, to move up these boxes to the ceiling but I think it's a uh, uh, in a way it's tragic that we end up living like mice in, in little boxes. But then again, if you look at the prices of the houses in San Francisco, it's absolutely no. How can anybody pay that? So you, you have to you have to be inventive and creative. Uh, yeah,
0: various statistics where San Francisco in particular is concerned have suggested that in order to rent somewhere that most of the rest of the Western world would regard as comfortable accommodation, you need to be earning well north of $100,000 a year. It, it has become absurd but on that subject, Quentin, what I don't understand about this is obviously San Francisco's prices are a result of incredible demand because people want to flock there to work for tech companies. Why don't the tech companies move? America has hundreds of cities in which you can buy a perfectly agreeable house for really not terribly much. I think
2: that it, it's all part of this sort of almost tribal culture or everybody wants to be surrounded by like-minded People and then you'll then then it'll all grow. So I think that's one reason why it does. People do periodically. I mean, after all, well, I suspect Seattle. <laughs> maybe he's coming up behind San Francisco as being an expensive place to be, but Seattle was, you know, in the backwards really until uh, until uh, Microsoft went there and and uh, and Bill Gates, you know, sort of set up there. um So I think, but I look at these places, and I must say horror is struck into me i am a clutter lover i adore clutter all the walls of my house are covered in pictures and paintings and everything and a place like this it would have nothing and my whole life is actually around me with all the little things i brought from russia or africa or germany or wherever it may be and i would hate to lose that
0: on that subject, though, Stephanie, is it possible that these uh, tech boffins are onto something in establishing the idea of more minimal living, the idea that people in future will have less clutter? Because. We probably won't need things like bookshelves, which yeah. take up a huge amount of space. Increasingly, people don't have large stereo systems or big CD or record collections. If you could, for example, Quentin, put all your pictures on a few digital screens that alternated them, might they actually be onto something? Have we actually been living the wrong way up until now?
1: I don't think we have been living the wrong way I think I still admire I mean I love it I love especially in London coming into big apartments where you have the wall full of old paintings and whole walls full of books but you are right I mean space is uh, very very small and and uh, we, we try to reduce everything so every iPhone although no iPhone's not really they're becoming bigger again <laughs> but but lots of things are now digital I don't have any files anymore I I, I file everything in you know, digitally mm. on my, my computer and I quite like it but at the same time I feel like this minimalistic style makes us all look very the same it's quite boring, hmm. it's, it's very difficult if you have no space to express yourself, so how do you express your space, your private um, sphere, if you have no space to do it?
0: I do own a filing cabinet now that I think of it, but I use it mostly to keep the printer on and now that I think of that I hardly ever use that anymore because who needs to? Um Quentin, though, just to go back to what you were saying about that idea of people wanting some sort of idea of tribal connection... Are we learning, and it is ironic that we should be learning this in San Francisco of all places, that we're not entirely ready for completely remote living and working yet. We still have that thing of wanting to be among people like us who live the same way and do the same jobs.
2: I I think that is true. I mean, I have a son-in-law who's trying to work at distance from his work, constantly therefore online. But you need then to go and re-engage with people. You need to get the chemistry out of personal contact and so on rather than everything being able to be done through the screen so quite apart from the fact that it does our backs in and everything else (laughs) sitting in front of a computer all day um, I think it does our heads in too and one of the things that I worry about when I walk down the street coming here to the studio and everybody's on their headphone they're not paying attention to the human beings around them or to the weather or to the smells and noises and people are living in this tiny little sort of digital space and i find that so i think we need the engagement with our fellow human beings and i don't think if we lose that we'll become very sad people
0: stephanie bolson and quentin peel thank you both for joining us in a moment from merkel to macron the eu drives a hard bargain you're listening to monocle's house view do stay tuned This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. When it was no deal or bust for Greece in 2015, Alexis Tsipras capitulated. Now, with the UK charting similar waters, we ask what's changed in our view from Monocle's editorial floor.
3: Hands up if you remember the Greek Euro referendum in 2015. Back then, it was Angela Merkel facing off with Alexis Tsipras, a brash newly elected prime minister who thought the threat of a euro exit could change the conditions of Greece's EU bailout deal. After going a few late-night negotiating rounds with Merkel, he wound up accepting the bailout's terms rather than risk a disastrous no-deal exit. Only the characters have changed as we enter, perhaps, the final throes of Britain's Brexit campaign. This time, the brash PM demanding new terms is Boris Johnson, facing off with France's Emmanuel Macron, who says the EU will be making a decision on Britain's fate by the end of the week. Why not Merkel in the lead? It's a sign of shifting powers in Europe, sure, but the reality is also that Macron has taken up the bad COP mantle on Brexit that Merkel held on Greece. This time, France is the country more determined, or stubborn, depending on your point of view, not to bend the EU's founding principles to give Johnson what he wants just like Germany was when it came down to the EU's budget rules with Greece. One difference. Macron is unlikely to receive the same blowback from his European colleagues that Merkel got for her tough approach to Greece. Why not? Is there more solidarity with Greece than with Britain? Or is there more trust in France's EU vision than Germany's? Diplomats, discuss.
0: That was The View from our editorial floor, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machelari and researched by Jolin Goffan and Naomi Potter, our studio manager, Steph Chongu. Coming up at twenty hundred, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.